0: Welcome to the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability Podcast Series. Today I'm so excited that we have visiting with us Brian Check. Hi Brian. Hi. Welcome to the program, Sierra. Yep. Brian is an ecological economist and is the executive director of the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, also known as Cassie. Brian spent nearly 20 years at the United States Fish and Wildlife Service headquarters before resigning in 2017 to run Cassie. His books include Supply Shock, Shoveling Fuel for a Runaway Train, and the Endangered Species Act, History, Conservation Biology, and Public Policy. Brian has a Ph.D. from the University of Arizona and is a leading figure in ecological economics. I would like to also note that he was the first conservation biologist ever hired by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and that uh, Cassie has been awarded the Eco Champion Award by Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, known as PEER, for uh, their work uh, in the arena of limits to growth and ecological uh, carrying capacity and integrity here on earth. And uh, Brian, I'm, I'm so thrilled we have the opportunity to speak together today and I think it's just hilarious. Here we are at a park. We happen to meet up in Aspen. We're both traveling through the high mountains of Colorado. It's been raining for, I don't know, 20-25 minutes or something and we are under a beautiful blue spruce which has more or less shielded all the the rain from us. Yeah, uh, more or less. So uh, here, here we are. Yeah. And uh, welcome, Brian, and uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with us. Thank you. Thanks. So why don't you kick us off uh, framing the conversation. What What is all this about? What is the uh, issue when we're talking about a steady state economy versus a perpetually growing economy?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it always helps to remind people what economic growth is. It's simply yeah. increasing production and consumption of goods and services in the aggregate. Yeah. And so that means a growing human population and or per capita production and consumption. And it's measured with GDP. And,
0: and that's the, an acronym that stands for uh,
1: gross, gross Domestic, domestic Product. product. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And we sometimes call it Gross Domestic Problem gross domestic Because it's beginning to cause more problems than it solves. Yeah. Uh, There are of course tremendous benefits to economic production but there are at this stage in in human history uh, tremendous uh, impacts and any environmental impact it's not just a, a tree hugger issue the environment is the foundation of the economy. So uh, there's a, we say that there is a fundamental conflict, fundamental because it can't be uh, gotten out of with just technological progress, for yes. example. Yes. A, fundamental, a fundamental conflict between economic growth and four things, uh, four categories of things, environmental protection, economic sustainability, national security, and international stability, more or less in that order although you might say well it's the international stability uh... that comes before the national security because international instability is such a a great threat as well uh... to national security
0: it's so interesting you know i I have been struck uh... working in and around uh, uh, the field of economics as it relates to environmental sustainability and that it has been the militaries, by and large, the intelligence community, and the reinsurance industries, who were most advanced in understanding some of these major systemic risks that mm-hmm. we have been facing out, you know, several decades, creeping a bit closer now, mm-hmm. and that these issues of international stability, national security are so intimately linked with. Mm-hmm. Uh, environmental protection and economic sustainability from a policy standpoint. Uh, it seems, golly, uh, some of our, uh, uh, I, I don't want to use the term knucklehead on a recording like this, but some of our, our friends and colleagues in Congress and inside DC uh, could, could do a little better in understanding some of these connections. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, there, there really is, uh, we live in a, a, a giant ecology, planet Earth, Mm-hmm. It's a contained and limited system, a beautiful one, and we share it with all our other human brothers and sisters all around the planet. Mm-hmm. So I just am so struck that getting into a conversation around economics and the the assumptions that we're working with in our culture when it comes to economics, there's a lot there that needs to be looked at and, and examined. Yeah, for sure. Uh,
1: Uh, and the part about limits to growth, I mean, that shouldn't be that it's not rocket science, uh, that you can't have a perpetually growing economy. I mean, uh, what are we going to have? A a trillion, quadrillion, gazillion GDP? When we think in these ridiculous terms, that's when we usually start to get some buy-in, even from conventional economists that, Mm. well, yeah, sure, there probably are limits to growth, but they're Mm. so far out there that why, you know, why should we even bother thinking about that now? But that's that's a whole different discussion all of a sudden than whether or not there is a limit to economic growth. Yeah. Once we all agree that, yeah, of course, you can't not, you can't have a perpetually growing economy, then the question is, well, wh- where should we stop that growth of the economy? When When is it starting to cause more problems than it solves? Yeah. And a lot of us, you know, that, that love the wide open spaces and uh, big trees and wildlife and Solitude. You know, we think it's already post-optimal. It, uh, uh-huh. The economy is already too big for uh, optimum conditions on the Earth, and uh, I think there's a lot of people are starting to agree with this. Yeah, it's not just the natural world now. It's creeping into our economies. It's harder yeah. and harder to maintain this level of economic activity in the U.S. and on the globe, yeah. and. uh... And it is very, yeah, tightly connected with international stability and and national security, not only from the pressures caused by international instability, but the need for economic sustainability to maintain, for example, a military, right? much less yep. a, a
0: healthy society. So I'm struck that uh, we'll be on this episode talking a bit about uh, different aspects of the economics, and I forget who said it, but somebody called uh, economics the dismal science. I I know for sure it's not every one of our uh, favorite subjects, but uh, Mm -hmm. nonetheless, I I think it really is important for us as citizens, as voters, as participants in this uh, momentous time in in the human story, that we have some working understanding of, of some of these economic principles. And with that in mind, I'm hoping, you know, we're talking about uh, some uh, debates that have been going on for decades, even even uh, a couple centuries. Um, going back mm-hmm. to the late 1800s, uh, the Enlightenment period, we had the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, most famous among them uh, being probably Adam Smith, who wrote Wealth of Nations, published 1776. And across the water there, we had the French physiocrats very focused on the natural foundation of economic production and activity, and I was hoping you could walk through uh, when we're talking about primary secondary tertiary all these these steps and kind of what's going on in that broader economic picture uh, just walk us through how that uh, how we understand that to be working it would be helpful I'm sure for many in our audience
1: yeah well in uh, in ecological economics we call that the trophic structure of the economy. Um, so if we start with the economy of nature yeah which both Francois Quesnay and the physiocrats and Adam Smith had a pretty good grasp of you know they were renaissance men they understood the the bigger picture of the world they knew a lot about agricultural production and how the natural world worked and how that linked into economic activity yeah so in the economy of nature you know you have the at the base of that, the producers, the plants, and yep. they're called producers because they produce their own food via the process of photosynthesis. Yes. And then what eats the plants? Those are primary consumers. Mm-hmm. And then what consumes the primary consumers are secondary consumers, like predators. Uh huh. So that's the that's the very basics of the structure of the economy of nature yeah and you know, and there are service providers too, like decomposers and scavengers and uh pollinators, so humans come along, evolve, and were created, they're there now and and they're part of this economy of nature, and they're at the pinnacle of this trophic structure for one thing, yeah, they can eat anything else out there that's edible um and they also have to follow the same basic rules of the game. They have their—they have a trophic structure in their economy. Uh-huh. They, they're like a subset of that broader uh, economy of nature. Mm. And if you take this subset out and analyze it, it has its trophic structure. So it starts okay. with the agricultural and extractive sectors. Those are the producers.
0: That would be like forestry, fishing, yeah. mining.
1: Correct. These kinds
0: of yeah. taking from Earth and Earth's productivity directly.
1: Exactly. Okay. Direct directly. Mm-hmm. And then uh and then built upon that you have the, the manufacturing sectors and right. those are the basic trophic levels. The heavy manufacturing, you know, like iron ore refining, uh all the way up to the lightest sectors like computer chip manufacturing. Yeah, folks making cell phones and yeah. all that kind of business. Mm-hmm. And, and mixed all throughout that our service sectors, just like in the economy of nature. Uh-huh. Um, and so and that, it's actually a good way to view the fundamental conflict between economic growth and environmental protection. Yeah. because yeah. as that part of the economy of nature continues to expand, it's like a, like a trophic compression. Of all the other species below in that the broader economy of nature mm-hmm. so when you look at the list of um species that are endangered, this burgeoning list of threatened and endangered species, yeah. and you look at the causes of their endangerment, it's like a who's who of the American economy right just this and that sector one after another, that is what's pushed that's what uh is liquidating the habitats that yeah. species require to to make a living in mm-hmm. and uh, and same thing with animal and plant species being squeezed out by that growth of the human economy.
0: Yeah well we're certainly uh, living in precarious times and uh, I, I just heard recently that at the time approximately of I want to say uh, President Franklin Roosevelt, was it, or maybe it was Teddy Roosevelt, there were about two billion people on the planet. And now, just over a hundred years, or about a hundred years later, we have about seven and a half billion people on the planet. And, you know, many of my friends working in the realm of of social justice, as it relates especially to the environmental issues that we're concerned with, um, point out that some of the population discussion or debate is very loaded Uh, with uh, social justice issues and and really ethical issues and issues that require us to look at our human decency and matters of dignity and matters of the heart, if you will. Mm -hmm. But that that all aside for just a moment, just looking purely at the numbers of growing from something like 2 billion to almost four times as much within just a few generations, Mm -hmm. that's obviously a pattern you don't want to uh to see perpetuating or, or continuing for too many more generations in this situation. It should be obvious,
1: shouldn't it? Yeah. India India alone has a billion people. Yeah. And and people that are at the that do not consume uh as wastefully on a per capita basis as yeah. they do in the US, for example. Right. And nevertheless, you can already see the signs of resource shortage that much of Tamil Nadu in southern India is without water. Yeah. Very cl- it's a perilous existence uh, in cities like Chennai, yeah. huge cities in southern India. And there's no end in sight. It. That It's not only climate change, it's the use of the water resources there. Yep. And water is the lifeblood of the economy. I mean, some people might say it's oil. Well, okay, you know, uh, lifeblood, uh, the energy, the calories required, one's oil, one's water. They're both re- required for this mm. level of economic activity, you mm. know, an $82 trillion dollar global economy right now. Um, and uh, so the economy, once again, going back to the earliest minutes of this, it's it's... Population times per capita production and consumption. Yep. Either one's too high, gets to be too much for yep. the planet and the future economy.
0: Yeah, I just, I have to point out, or I know a few of my friends will uh, give me a hard time afterward. With respect to the water and the oil uh, piece, so many folks now are working on solutions to transition from oil, clearly. There are a whole number of reasons why that's uh, worthwhile and thankfully underway. Water, on the other hand, there's no substitute for water. Uh, water is life. Our bodies obviously are composed of it, 70% or better. Uh, mm-hmm. Same as the surface of the planet itself, uh, interestingly. And so clearly, when we're when we're now confronted with situations around the planet where more and more of us do not have access to water. Mm-hmm. Um, that that ought to be on its face enough for us to be thinking about these economic issues. Mm -hmm. uh, Hands down. Absolutely. And um, it's, I think that although
1: it seems like economic growth is is so ensconced as you know, the primary policy goal around the world, it's it. You can see the the cracks in that firmament, if you will, in a lot of countries now, in a lot of parts of the world. Uh, Bhutan moving to the pursuit of gross national happiness. Yes. Because they see all the unhappiness around the world associated with pulling out all the stops for GDP growth. Right. Um, You know, and even before that, uh, the Thailand's idea of the sufficiency economy rather than, you know, more and more, Every year, yeah, um, there are precedents for this, and uh, it's the logical way to go. It's the uh, the the ethical way to go, and it's the diplomatic way to go. I mean, when we call for a steady-state economy in the U.S., uh, obviously, that's not sufficient for global sustainability. We so we have a vision for steady statesmanship, we like to call it, in international diplomacy. We have to figure out uh, where are the biggest problems in terms of the per capita consumption, where's the most wasteful consumption, and and where are populations burgeoning so rapidly that the rest of the world can't absorb that, those rates of immigration. Yep. Both of these things have to really be wrestled with seriously in international diplomacy, uh, growth is not the answer. Growth is just compounding both
0: of those two problems. Yes, yes, absolutely. Hey, you know, I love uh, the discussion around the gross national happiness uh, work that's being done in Bhutan. And I I imagine some of our audience may not be familiar. Is that something you could tell us a little more about? A little more, yeah. Um, So there was,
1: Bhutan was a kingdom yeah. as little as seven years ago maybe and the king of Bhutan um, did look around and had become familiar with some of the uh, principles of ecological economics. I think he was familiarized partially through uh, the convention on biological diversity that heads of state attended and um, and you know and there's sort of a a, a bit of a Common sense out there now around the world that there are serious environmental problems, and that is such a spectacularly beautiful country. And the people from Bhutan are proud of that. If you, you know, meet the people from there, they are happy. Mm. How couldn't you be in in such a spectacular place? And and so they want to keep it that way. Yep. They look out at what they have and they don't want that to change dramatically they don't want bulldozers coming in and skyscrapers messing up messing that up so so he uh uh said to the people you know gdp is not what we're after we're after yeah. gross national happiness and and concurrently with that as you know he moved that government into a ministerial government so that's kind of a very nice uh sequence of events, both Mm. what we might call steady statesmanship, corresponding with a more democratic form of government. It's really nice. Absolutely
0: beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I just want to make a quick note um, before it slips my mind. And uh, that reminds me of uh, something we were discussing earlier, uh, which is often the Activities we can engage in on a day-to-day basis that are most conducive to our health, our well-being, our high quality of life are activities where we're not buying and consuming. Here, here yeah. we are under a blue spruce. Mm-hmm. It's been raining a while. We've been standing here a while. It's been absolutely delightful. Mm-hmm. We're we're getting so much benefit in the fresh air and. Uh, the I wish it was tree, throwing off
1: a little more heat. A little, little
0: more heat. <laughs> But uh, you know, it has here, shelter. That's it. here. Here we are, and we're not. We're not spending money to be right here.
1: Yeah, good point. Because money originates, you know, with that agricultural and extractive activity at the base. That um, goes back to that the trophic structure of the economy. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to monetary matters, we we call that uh, well, we call it the trophic theory of money because money does originate via the agricultural surplus, especially that frees the hands for the division of labor into all these different activities, economic activities. But, uh, you know, a lot of the pleasures of life, like you know, the folks that just came around walking the dog with the little grandkid and stuff that didn't cost anything. And uh, and it's not nobody's paying for that or extracting resources uh, in any, you know, they Obviously somebody had to make a living to feed the family. There's the base level. Nobody's saying don't have any economic activity. It's a matter of how much.
0: Yeah, the appropriate levels. Appropriate levels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really struck uh, about the fact that you're doing a whole lot of work at the policy level uh, working with lawmakers, et cetera. And, and we'll, I want to make sure we get to that uh, in a couple minutes. Okay. But, of course, with the Why on Earth community, we also, uh, in addition to our civic uh, work and uh, conversations with policymakers, etc., we are also very focused on what can we do in our day-to-day lives, uh, folks from all sorts of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you mentioned earlier to me before we started the recording that uh, really, really stuck is your emphasis on spending less, simply spending less. Certainly. Uh, when we were just talking about how
1: uh, more money, the supply of money and the flow of money, money supplies like the M0, the M1, the the uh, liquid types of money supplies and flows of money like GDP. These are outstanding indicators of environmental impact. Right. At this point in history, GDP is probably a better indicator of environmental impact than it is of any kind of well-being. Absolutely. And so yeah. Yeah. spending less, that that entails a little less of that economic activity. You know, why uh, buy, purchase something that is already provided by nature? We didn't have to go out and buy a tent, that would have required more surplus at that economic base, there's already a tree here we can stand under. Um, there's examples just one after another in the course of a, of a, of a day of a human life. Um, yeah. It's, uh, this, this this one will seem maybe kind of corny, but you when you wash your hands, you don't necessarily have to pull out a paper towel or run some electric, yeah. Dryer, yeah. you know. Think about the uh, 300-some million people in the country that are doing that several times a day. That stuff really adds up.
0: It really <laughs> does. It absolutely does. Yeah. Paper
1: yeah. cups, straws, all, yeah. all of that. By what? Well, you get me rolling now. Yeah. Sorry, good. but <laughs> I, it, I have to say it. I can't stand those hummers. Uh huh. You know, and thank goodness the the Hummer demand seems to have abated. But for a while, Hummers were all the rage, and you know during the the uh, Gulf Wars. Besides, what yeah. a horrible symbolism that was, and what a yeah. uh, awful example of conspicuous consumption that is not only unsustainable, but in a way, uh, in a way, it alone was a threat to national security because it makes. Americans or whichever country is, you know, behaving like that, makes us look bad. Makes us look like greedy pigs. Truly. And then you know, and then we want to shut down the borders from people that have orders of magnitude less. Those two things combined uh, look really
0: bad. Right. We're not looking like uh, good citizens in the neighborhood. Exactly. In this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. You know, it reminds me too, you know, when we're taking a walk, say, or just having a nice chat in the park with somebody for a couple hours, we're not contributing to GDP at that point. However, if in a scenario, say I was walking down the street, I got hit by a car, an ambulance had to come get me, take me to a hospital, meanwhile I got news, perhaps I was about to get a divorce or something i'm not actually married but uh you know and had to get some lawyers in the mix this that and the other you know i could have all of these really terrible things happening to me but guess what those are all positive contributors to gdp well good thing you didn't get hit by a hummer eh? oh yeah that'd be, <laughs> even be worse.
1: A, just the worst of all
0: worlds <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it just illustrates that for for a lot of us uh maybe who we haven't thought about this quite as much GDP is not at all an indicator as to quality of life, as to uh, how well things are going. Right.
1: You know, to to be fair to conventional economics and conventional economists, um, in countries with truly widespread poverty, yes. You know, then GDP per capita is a, a useful metric. Right. But, you know, you can't get carried away. It's not the only metric because of examples like the ones you just mentioned. But uh, certainly in a country where the vast majority is reasonably well-fed and and sheltered and and far beyond that, frankly, uh, then the GDP per capita is causing just as many problems as it's solving in human health. And uh, social social life and uh, political life. It's uh, uh, That's why, you know, way back in the 1860s, John Stuart Mill, you're probably very familiar with, was calling already for what he called a stationary state, which had nothing to do with a stagnating economy or society. You know, in a steady state economy, there's plenty of room for technological replacement, Mm -hmm. uh, for consumer preferences to shift, uh, for all kinds of economic dynamism, dynamic changes in the economy. It's just the size of that thing that is what matters uh, in terms of sustainability. That's what matters the most. And so John Stuart Mill recognized that way back in the 1860s in England and said, you know, why don't we focus more on quality of life outside of this economic activity? You know, uh, political life and civil, uh, civil uh, life and uh, civil rights and reforms and um, you know, improving uh, child education uh, and you know, all the other things that oftentimes are actually competed for. Uh, By you know regular economic activities. that go in that are included in GDP calculations.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely absolutely I uh, Would love if we could share a little bit about the Cassie position on economic growth, and I want to mention that folks if you'd like to learn more and uh, You can actually uh, there's a a great really quick video at uh, steadystate.org and uh, on there, you can also uh, check out, and if you would like to, you can uh, become a signer of the uh, Cassie position on economic growth. By the way, there are already 14,000 uh, signatures, signatories, and uh, 215 organizations as well have uh, endorsed this. So, I, you can see here, it's a kind of a full page, it's, which is a summary of something that's fairly complex. But uh, I thought it might be nice to read a few of the highlights. If that sounds good, Brian. Yeah, nice. And uh, you want you want me to go for it, or you yeah. want to do it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool for it. So it says, whereas economic growth, as defined in standard economics textbooks, is an increase in the production and consumption of goods and services, based upon established principles of physics and ecology, there is a limit to economic growth. Therefore, we take the position that there is a fundamental conflict between economic growth and environmental protection for example biodiversity conservation clean air and water atmospheric stability and a steady-state economy that is an economy with a relatively stable mildly fluctuating production of population and per capita consumption is a viable alternative to a growing economy and has become a more appropriate goal in large, wealthy economies. And for many nations with widespread poverty, increasing per capita consumption or alternatively more equitable distributions of wealth remains an appropriate goal. So, what I love about this framework is that it is it's speaking to and encompassing a lot of complexity, but specifically is calling out that there there are different appropriate courses for the wealthy more developed nations versus the poorest economies around the world and I really appreciate that it, it recognizes that that subtlety
1: yeah we had to or uh, um, just it makes ethical sense and it makes political sense frankly yeah uh, yeah I guess you showed that to them but you know the Cassie position has 16 sentences and so yeah. Aaron just read like five that kind of summarize this thing that's already a summary of a, yeah see like a complex issue
0: yep so so you too can sign on to this along with some very notable thought leaders like uh, EO Wilson Jane Goodall Vandana Shiva David Suzuki Chris Matthews right so some folks who have also given this a whole lot of thought um are have signed on and and are considering this a very worthwhile uh cause mm-hmm. so brian i thought it would be good to also discuss you know what when we're talking with our uh congress people lawmakers etc what are what are some of the key points and in and, and what ways do we best frame this discussion for them well right now you
1: we have a president trump who is obsessed with GDP growth. And so if you're a Democrat and you're going to visit, you know, a democratic representative or senator, why not tell them, look, Trump's got this argument that he's such a success because that GDP uh, growth rate is so high. But look at all the stops he's pulling out for that. He's trashing the environmental regulations of the country. Our standing in international diplomacy—he's pulling us out of international, of crucial international agreements. You know, he's all over with the tariffs. Uh, so, uh, what we, what, and when I say we, I'm, I'm an independent personally, politically, because, bo- because both parties are still so pro-growth. Mm. But what, a, what a Democrat can do is like we did with Cory Booker. We went into Cory Booker's office, met with staff and said, you know, given Trump's argument, why not take some baby steps away from condoning GDP growth? Okay. At least baby steps. And so you may have heard, Cory Booker has said things lately like, uh, GDP doesn't speak to my constituents. Mm. That's a baby Mm. step. And that's key because once there's one by one politician on the hill, there will be other, you know, leapfrogging steps by other politicians on the hill, especially with a prominent one, you know, a, a presidential candidate like that. So that's one thing we suggest. Ask your representative to take some baby steps, uh, with you know, rhetorical baby steps to get... Mm the idea out there in the public and in the polity with all the policy makers that GDP is in everything. Yeah. And then it won't take long to point out that it really is a gross domestic problem as well as its gross domestic product. And, uh, and the, the concept that there is such a thing as post-optimal growth, growth that's causing more harm than good, that will that will start to percolate, and that'll that's steady statesmanship. Uh, you know, if this is growth that's unsustainable, mm-hmm. well, that would be unsustainable degrowth. What's yep. the sustainable alternative? It's this thing in between.
0: That's the steady state economy. It's a middle path. I like that. Yeah, the
1: middle <laughs> path.
0: And what about uh, those of us who would be speaking with Republican uh, members of Congress? What what advice do you have on that uh, on that side? Well. So we
1: feel at Cassie that we have a latent connection with rural communities, in particular farmers yeah. and hunters and fishermen. Uh-huh. They're the first ones that see the, the detriments of an overgrown economy. The green space is gone. Uh, the taxes are getting so intense, it's hard to maintain a farm anymore or a ranch. Um, you know the hunting grounds aren't there anymore. Every place is posted, uh, so we think that some of our most natural allies are actually Republicans. Yeah. You know they call themselves conservatives. Yeah, well, we say we're the true conservatives.
0: I love we're, it. You know
1: conservation
0: is a steady-state economy. It's like in the tradition of uh, Teddy Roosevelt.
1: Yeah, right. In the tradition of TR. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt set aside all these national wildlife refuges and yeah. national forests and to, and what those are, are, you know, when you think of an, a national wildlife refuge, what's it a refuge from? It's a refuge from the economy. That's right. You know, you put those yeah. signs out and you protect that from the bulldozers and, and even from, from too much outdoor recreation. Sure. You can't have too much of any economic activity, but the main thing is, you know, the, the economy in the aggregates, all the sectors added up.
0: Yeah, that's really great, Brian. Oh, go can ahead. I add something? Please, yeah. yeah, please. So
1: you know, that's a, that's a real general thing you can tell your politician. We we are we have embarked on a long-term legislative project at Cassie. Yeah, and that's to amend the Employment Act, which is the central macroeconomic policy of the United States. Um, and after the 1978 amendments, it was called the Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act. So Congress got the government not in, not only into economic stabilization but into growth mm-hmm. as a formal policy role and it's reflected all over in fiscal and monetary policy and trade policy too so what we have we are rewriting the employment act to what we call the full and sustainable mm, employment right. act. and it starts with a preamble that congress finds and declares that there is a limit to economic growth and that economic growth is causing many profound problems in the USA and in the world. And we are therefore uh, setting as a goal, a long-term goal, a sustainable steady state economy. And then the rest of the, the, the act is going to be about the programs and, uh, and procedures for transitioning from a growth economy to the steady state. And nobody, you know, there, there's not going to be any breaks that are slammed on so that overnight a steady state economy happens. There will be decades sure of adjustments in monetary policy, in the banking system, and in fiscal policy, in the tax code, uh, and in, in the budgets federal and state and, and local budgets, uh, and planning and zoning policies. But certainly, you know, the, there are. There's got to be some leadership at the federal level, and uh, meanwhile, there's a lot of opportunity at, at local levels. So we have another um, campaign we're just starting called "Keep Our Counties Great"
0: campaign. Mm-hmm.
1: I love yeah. it. Because if you like your if you like what you see when you look out there, well, you want to keep it that way, and that is
0: the steady state economy. So how can we uh, how can we get involved and support and help all this work that you're doing
1: well like you said before start by uh, visiting the website steadystate.org and sign the cassie position that's sort of a, uh, as you might imagine we're swimming straight upstream the river of political economy yeah big money does doesn't want us around they're certainly not going to donate to us yeah so the only other thing that speaks as loudly as money to the politician is signatures. Mm-hmm. So these signatures really do matter. Um, and of course, if you feel so compelled as, as to donate, obviously donations are going to help. We have, we're one of the leanest nonprofits out there. We only have two at this time, full-time employees and two mm-hmm. part-time. And then we have a fairly robust internship program and volunteer program. We have uh, Cassie chapters around the world. Join a Cassie chapter, become a chapter director if you you know ha- if you feel like you want to provide some leadership in this. Um, you know, read up more on the topic. We have uh, resources at the website, books, and journal articles that will provide you uh, with the tools that you need. You know, to be able to talk shop on steady-state economics. Um, What else can you do? Uh, Well, we already talked about spending less, of course. Um, But I would say uh, start using the phrase, frankly, steady state economy, because Mm. there's there's too much lack of clarity out there right now about what the alternatives
0: are. Hashtag steady state.
1: Yeah, yeah, hashtag
0: steady state. Cool, I dig it. Mm -hmm. So Brian, uh, let me just uh, remind our audience that this is the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series, and today we are speaking with Brian Check, the Executive Director of CASI, the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy. Um, I want to be sure to give a shout out to our sponsors making this podcast possible. Uh, and all the work that we're doing around the country with community mobilization efforts that includes Patagonia, Waylay Waters, the International Society of Sustainability Professionals, Purium, Earth Coast Productions, the Lidge Family Foundation, and the association of, uh, excuse me the uh, Association of Waldorf Schools of North America, OSNA. so thanks to all of you for your support and a huge thank you to each of you individually, individuals who have already signed up for our monthly giving program. Um, this is such an important way to support the work we're doing at the Y on Earth community and already have had so many great uh, folks join in this effort. If you would like to join please uh, go to whyonearth.org. that's the letter Y on earth.org, and you can sign up at any level that works well for you. When you do, we'll be sure to send you a code for a uh, free download of any of the ebook and audiobook resources that you would like to have in your collection now also a very special uh, gift for our cassie friends anyone in the cassie network and membership uh, can use the code cassie that's c-a-s-s-e uh, at yunearth.org to get 50% discounts on all of the ebook and audiobook resources. So, uh, just yeah. a- another way to thank you and all of your network for all the work you all are doing. Yeah, thank you. And uh, Brian, it's just been a-, a pleasure to have this opportunity to connect with you. I think it's so fun. We were both traveling through the mountains and we were able to link up here. <laughs> and uh, lo-, lo and behold, it has stopped raining. The sun is shining. Um, before we sign off, I, I just want to make sure is there anything else you'd like to? To say uh, in closing, well, it might be a little too detailed, but you mentioned the
1: schools. Uh, yeah, that's another resource we have available. We have K-12 curriculum.
0: Oh, fabulous! Uh, available. Great. Yeah,
1: we had a grant from the Whedon Foundation to produce this curriculum. We have a Limits to Growth game for age, uh grades one through three, as part of that. Uh, but I, I just noticed that was something I forgot to add when you asked. You know what else people might do? And, but I just wanna say thank you also. Uh, I think anybody that's listening to your podcast uh, by their nature are the, are kind of the ultimate solution to these problems. Uh, I mean, I don't think there, I think sustainability is a steady state economy, but there are all types of expertise required to get us to into that place. So thank you audience and, and thanks Aaron for
0: having me on here. Hey, thank you, Brian. It's okay. been great. Okay. Look forward to collaborating more with you too, by the way, me too. as we get going.
2: Me too.
0: All right. See you later. Bye everybody.
2: The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org backslash support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code Earth, All one word with a why.